electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Thank you, Jim. I'm Brian Sullivan. And tonight, pharma in an uproar, a judge's abortion pill ruling as hundreds of industry exec warning of chaos for the entire drug industry. Is President Biden about to enlist a social media army to spread his talking points to millions of voters and basically build a new White House press corps, a story you've got to hear? Could we be close to one of the biggest oil deals ever? Hmm. The tax man cometh. What exactly is the IRS going to do with 80 billion more of your tax dollars? And getting paid six figures to do? Well, basically nothing. The true confession from big tech workers that will astound you. That and much more in the next hour. So belly up or buckle up. Last call is up right now. Thanks for being with us and good evening, everybody. Well, good evening here. Good afternoon out west. We're going to get to all of those stories coming up in the next 60 minutes. But first up tonight, Elon Musk's big bet on China. Now, of course, tension between the U.S. and Beijing are escalating practically by the day over Taiwan. But Tesla is apparently brushing those risks aside. Musk says the electric car giant is opening a new Megapack battery factory in Shanghai. Megapacks are the massive power storage units that are supposed to help stabilize the energy grid and prevent outages. Basically, just a giant battery, a mega pack. They are a key piece in Musk's grand plans for a sustainable energy future. A single mega pack can power about 3,600 homes for about an hour, about according to Tesla. And this new factory is set to make 10,000 of those things every year for sale around the world. It is a big deal. The Chinese government loves it because what's not to love? Likely billions of dollars in investment and thousands of jobs, all alongside a blue chip American brand. Oh, and by the way, one of, if not the world's most famous CEOs, effectively giving a much coveted endorsement to doing business in China. Tesla already has a massive gigafactory churning out electric cars in Shanghai. So doing business in China is nothing new for Tesla or many others. We're not picking on Tesla here. But what is new is that this investment comes as China just wraps up three days of heavy-duty war games. These war games weren't subtle. China's military simulated fully sealing off Taiwan and the critical sea and air routes nearby. China said it is, quote, and these are their words, ready to fight. Kind of seems like it, doesn't it? And there's no way that Musk will be alone in courting China. If we want to meet our climate goals here and spend hundreds of billions of dollars trying to build out the president's Green New Deal, it will be impossible without cozying up to China. They control the minerals, most of the manufacturing and most of the key supply chain. And they likely will for years or decades to come. Without a doubt, this will draw enormous scrutiny from the U.S. government. Case in point, just moments ago, Congressman Mike Gallagher, the chair of the House Select Committee on China, called Tesla's China deals, quote, very 
concerning. It just happened. Because here's the trade-off. Let's be real. You can either get tough with China over Taiwan and risk the rise of renewables, or you could turn a blind eye and keep sending them the cash. What would you do? Love to hear from you. Joining us now is Louisiana Senator John Kennedy. Senator Kennedy, thanks for joining us. I hope that laid it out. I mean, this is, this is a difficult choice. It is, we need the stuff, we want the stuff, they can make the stuff that we can't make. Oh, but at the same time, we may not only be funding a potential army or air force invasion of Taiwan, but a lot of this stuff might be made in forced labor camps. Oh, I, I understand why companies want to do business in China. They have 1.5 billion people. Their GDP per capita is not nearly as great as ours. It's about 13,000. Ours is about 70,000. But they, uh, they have a lot of purchasing power. But here's the problem. Uh, China is wealthy in part, large part, because we helped admit China to the World Trade Organization on December 11th, 2001. China started cheating December 12th. And um, the what, Chinese What do you mean, Communist Senator, by Party cheating? Still- uh, we hear that term a lot, but if you were to define it as the head of the Select Committee on China, explain to our audience, many of whom are not D.C. insiders, what that word means. Hmm? Well, when I say that the Communist Party of China will steal the hair off your head, what I mean is the Communist Party of China controls all business in China. Uh, The Communist Party of China directs businesses to steal trade secrets, to surveil illegally American businesses, to steal intellectual property. And if Tesla, for example, opens a plant in China, as it has in part, uh, if you're not, if Tesla's not char- careful, China will steal all its intellectual property, and you'll start seeing a lot of counterfeit goods, a lot of little Chinese Teslas running around, and they won't need Tesla anymore. And and that's the problem, right? I, I don't, yeah. I don't want to be in a cold war with China or a hot war. I just want China to be a stable member. Of a, of a global world order. But China's not going to do that by us giving them hugs and hot cocoa. They understand strength. If you go to China, as I have, there's cars that look a lot like Range Rovers. There are jets that look a lot like the Boeing 737, but they are obviously not. There is no Twitter. There really is no Facebook. At one point years ago, I think Bill Gates said that 95% of Windows installs at the time were fraudulent. Why are we so eager? Yes, they have a lot of people and they're growing in their wealth. And GM would love to sell them a lot of Buicks, which, by the way, is a red hot brand in China. But is it all worth it, Senator? Those dollars fund the aircraft carriers that we just saw off the off the straits of Taiwan. Well, the better the better question, the better question, it seems to me, is I'm not saying it's a bad question, but to me, the more appropriate question is what do we do about it? Um, our economies, U.S. and China, are inextricably linked now. Uh, we, we sell about $180 billion worth of stuff every year to China, but we buy about $580 billion worth of stuff. This, this potential Cold War with China is not like it was with Russia. Our economies were not linked. Our economy is linked with China. 
Will, that, so will that be if, enough if, to keep if, the peace, Senator? Say, well, will that be enough to keep the peace? The fact I that don't there, know. there is don't an know. economic he, bond. He, here, here's here's what I say would do to keep the peace with China. Number one, we need to talk often. We need to talk often. The silent treatment on either side doesn't work. Number two, President Xi. How can I put this? He is basically a gangster. Um, with him, weakness invites the wolves. If you yeah. turn your, the other cheek on President Xi, all he'll do is stab you in the neck. Now, yeah. that doesn't mean we have to have a war, cold or hot, with him. But uh, peace through weakness will not work with China. We have to be very firm, very clear. Mm -hmm and have consequences when China doesn't comply. And let's hope we can, let's hope we can have some high, let's hope we can, the pre, President Biden's in Ireland right now. Putin just met with President Xi. We'll see what happens. Senator Kennedy, thank you very much for joining us on CBC. We do appreciate it, sir. Thank you. By the way, if you haven't read about Xi's life, just go back and read some cursory paragraphs about what his life was like as a child, as an adolescent, and it will be a window into maybe how he thinks. It was a brutal upbringing. All right, in the meantime, Here's what happened to your money today. The Dow, the SP, the NASDAQ going in different directions. Not a lot happened. Waiting on inflation data. Dow up 101. The NASDAQ, it fell three one hundredths of a percent. That inflation data, we call it the Consumer Price Index, CPI, will be out on Wednesday. The Producer Price Index on Thursday. Those will be the big economic numbers of the week. So tomorrow, we'll see what happens. We may not have a whole lot of movement either way. Speaking of tomorrow, let's take a look at the futures. Again, very thinly traded, waiting on inflation data markets, maybe at fractionally higher there on the future. All right, straight ahead. The energy deal of the 21st century? Maybe. ExxonMobil reportedly in talks to buy Pioneer Natural. But what it happened? I'll speak to a merger expert. Plus, hundreds of pharma and biotech leaders say a judge's abortion pill ruling could upend the entire drug industry, having nothing to do with abortion. Two of them will state their case. Next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. All right, welcome back to Last Call. And happy Monday, by the way. Could there soon be a mega deal in the oil markets? The Wall Street Journal reporting that ExxonMobil and Pioneer Natural Resources were exploring a possible deal where Exxon would buy Pioneer. For what it's worth, three people I spoke with over the weekend said that a deal would be highly unlikely given things like Pioneer's valuation and the fact that ExxonMobil probably would not want to face more government heat 
at a time when it is selling its shareholders on a decarbonization future. That said, Journal does a great job. Let's assume the reporting is correct. Any combination here would be huge. Exxon is worth more than $466 billion. Pioneer, by the way, you may not know this, is the biggest producer in the Permian Basin and worth nearly $52 billion. Keep in mind, it's not the first time recently the Pioneer was written about as having a wandering eye. It was also a recent story about the Dallas-based company doing a deal with Range Resources. Nothing materialized. Let's talk about it with TD Cowan merger specialist Aaron Glick. Aaron, thanks for coming on. I just said it. My sources said, man, given valuations, given government uh, regulation, given the political heat, they don't think it's going to happen. Journal's a great paper. They do a good job. What's your take? Yeah, so just sticking to the regulatory process here, um, they could come under more scrutiny, but that doesn't mean they couldn't get a deal done. Actually, the path to completion here seems pretty clear. That doesn't mean the FTC and this administration wouldn't attempt to block the deal. But given that the only regulatory approvals here would be in the U.S., they wouldn't be able to rely on any international jurisdiction that's essentially unappealable to stop the transaction. You're looking at a, at a deal that could get done, whether it's being approved by the FTC or if they have to actually go to court and overturn a challenge. This, there's a path to this completing, and I think it's reasonably straightforward. Yeah, if a deal did get done, and the stock moved nearly 6%, so things were bought on it. Again, my sources say it is unlikely, given certain meetings that people were having last week, whatever. Would Chevron then be forced to act? Well, it's, it's certainly an interesting question, and that's definitely out of my wheelhouse, but it, it could kick off a, uh, a little oil and gas um, M&A boom. That's for sure. Yeah, and Pioneer's got that variable dividend, which some people say they need to get out from under that it's hurt them and maybe doing a deal is a way to get out from under it. Aaron Glick, T.D. Cowan, going to leave it there. Aaron, thank you very much. Have a good night. Thank you. All right. Now to a story that maybe should have every free speech advocate I don't know, a little bit concerned. Axios reporting that President Biden may enlist a few hundred social media stars to tout his record as he heads for a reelection bid. The report in Axios says the White House wants to use these mostly younger, obviously digital media stars, to target voters who may not follow the White House's official feed on social media or who may not watch or read more traditional and, dare I say, regulated media. And check this out. The report says the social media army could even have its own press briefing room at the White House. If true, wouldn't that essentially create a second White House press corps filled with those handpicked by the White House itself? Joining us now is the Axios reporter who broke the big story. Sophia Sai, and author of the new book, Next, The Power of Reinvention in Life and Work, our friend Joanne Littman. Sophia, starting with you, I, by the way, amazing story, amazing scoop. I posted it all over the place. I got a variety of feedback. What kind of feedback did you get on the story? And was there anything that I said that, mi that mischaracterized the story? No, I think all of that is correct. Right. The briefing room obviously surprises some people. And I think the thinking behind that is, look, young people, you know, i.e. people my age and younger are not all watching cable news. They're not all reading the newspaper. Instead, they're scrolling through TikTok and Instagram to get their political rundown, not just political either. So, you know, they want to meet people where people are at. And these are also prospective voters, of course, but, you know, they are not saying that well, because this is the official uh, White House that's doing this. 
And I, I assume, now, I, I actually did not go to school for any journalism, so I'm a terrible example, but I, I do have a law degree. I feel like I kind of have, and we have editors here, and we've got the FCC up our grill if something goes wrong. Sophia, I'm assuming that you studied something having to do with journalism in college. I studied politics. Oh, so did I. And here we are now. But point is, you, you, this is your profession. You know, and to me, there's like, when I read your story, again, I urge everyone to go read it. I felt like there's no knocking these influencers. They're all famous in their own right and built great brands. But this is not what they do for a living. And I think that is a risk that the White House will have to take. You know, to your point, they're not necessarily uh, regulated by editors. They don't necessarily have a newsroom standard. You know, they are more of an unknown. So that is the risk that I think the White House will have to take uh, in, in, in sort of moving forward with this effort. And I spoke to uh, Obama's former digital strategy director, and he said, look, you know, during the Obama era, they weren't doing this. They were focused on the White House owned and operated channels, yeah. which are at POTUS, at White House. And that was mostly it. But, you know, you know, Joanne, listen, this is not a to, again, maybe I'm really reading this wrong. This was not a digital media, quote, strategy. Oh, we're just going to, you know, talk some this. This appears to be people that are basically on your payroll, even if they're not being paid directly, they're probably going to benefit from increased ad rates and follower accounts in their own feeds. This is basically advertisers going directly to the people around the traditional people. I mean, that to me was a little scary. And what am I missing? Yeah, so I think that the the calling it a press room for TikTokers is where where the confusion lies because honestly, these are advocates, right? There, there is. They are not a a free and fair press who's reporting on the news. They are there to be advocates. Um, that said, you know, it is true. Look, ninety one percent of the eighteen to twenty nine year olds don't get their news from anywhere but digital media. I mean, that's the primary place where they're getting their news. But they wouldn't so- be getting. But Joanne, I hear you. But and that. But they're not getting the news if this goes the way that Sophia's story. They're getting whatever the White House wants to tell them. I'll give you an example. The president loves to say that 12.5 or whatever million new jobs have been created. That is not accurate, okay? I'm just gonna say it. The number of jobs created since December of 2019, the pre-COVID level, which is what you're supposed to base it on, is about two million. If you cherry pick the actual bottom of the COVID furloughs, yes, you get to 12 and a half million. But there's gonna be people like us that will push back respectfully on stuff like that. If you're just filtering stuff out to tens of millions of TikTokers or whatever, again, no knock on them, they're not, they're not gonna push back. They're just gonna be spreading the message. I actually think there's going to be a distinction made at some point between the TikTokers who are advocates and TikTokers who are actually trying to practice news. Some of this reminds me, honestly, Brian, if we go back to the beginning of blogging, Right. Blogging was also seen as something very suspect. They weren't allowed near any candidates. And some of those bloggers eventually became what we would consider journalists, like a HuffPo, which won a Pulitzer Prize eventually. So I think we're in this transitional phase where they are moving into the mainstream. But I do think the key distinction is we should not be calling whatever this is a press room because it really is about marketing and advertising, not about journalism. And and, and people can listen. I know, Sophia, people push back on me like, well, what does the traditional media do? They're all, you know, I get it. Okay, but the people in the White House press corps, I know a lot of them, they work hard. Okay, most of them went to school for something like this. They earned the right to be in that room as far as their journalistic chops. 
And my guess is, and whatever you think of them, they were picked by their organization. They were not picked by the White House. That's my concern that some of these people in your story are going to be hand selected by the White House to go deliver the message nationwide to millions of influential younger voters. Yeah, and I think that is all true. You know, this is this is unprecedented. And, you know, another piece of my story here is that the head of digital strategy has been elevated to the rank of assistant to the president. That is the same level as White House communications director and White House press secretary. That is all mm. unprecedented. Wow. Now, since Obama, yep. I mean, the presidents have increasingly been relying on social media. This seems to be a, a major step up if you're giving them a room. You're giving them direct own. access and telling them to basically go say what you want other people to hear. That what the White House's direct messaging. It, I don't know. Am I wrong? That Viewers be- on, by the way, on social media, let us know if I'm wrong. Sophia Sai, I'll post the story again. Joanne Littman, great discussion. Hopefully this conversation is not over, folks. I mean, that's, you get into like disinformation. It's easy to just spread things. Anyway, all right, a quick programming note. Tomorrow morning on Squawk Box, maybe he'll talk about it. Former Google CEO Eric Schmidt will talk about why he opposes a pause in AI development, breaking with some other tech leaders concerned about its potential. That will be at 8 a.m. Eastern. Hopefully they'll ask him about this. Still ahead, a controversial ruling surrounding abortion pills could be consequential for the entire drug industry and the FDA's entire authority. The side of the story you may not be hearing anywhere else. Next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, welcome back. A major ruling in Texas facing backlash from the healthcare community. Executives from Pfizer and other drug companies are slamming a ruling by a federal judge who halted the FDA's approval of an abortion pill. CNBC's Meg Terrell joining us now with more. Meg. Hey, Brian. Well, it's less that uh, the approval focused on an abortion pill that the industry is focused on, uh, but more the precedent it sets for the entire industry and the FDA's authority to regulate medicines. This is the first time a federal judge has overturned an FDA approval of a drug, and there's concern uh, that if this stands, it could really weaken the FDA's authority across the board. In fact, more than 400 executives and investors from across the biopharma industry have written a letter uh, to that point saying, quote, of course, Courts can overturn drug approvals without regard for science or evidence or for the complexity required to fully vet the safety and efficacy of new drugs. Any medicine is at risk of the same outcome of mifepristone. I was talking with Jeremy Levin, one of the authors of this letter, the CEO of Ovid Therapeutics. He was saying, unless this can be rolled back, this represents one of the greatest threats to drug approvals in the last 50 years. Now, legal scholars I've been speaking with have particularly pointed to things like vaccines or contraception as vulnerable areas, given there are some sort of political debates going on around them now. But the health secretary was on one of the Sunday shows over the weekend saying even drugs like the new Alzheimer's medicines could be at risk here. Really anything uh, anybody wants to challenge if they could find a sympathetic judge. Now, the FDA has said it's appealed this and that it stands behind its determination that mifepristone is safe and effective under its approval 
improve conditions of use for medical termination of early pregnancy and believes patients should have access to FDA-approved medications that FDA has determined to be safe and effective for their intended uses. Now, the Justice Department, which is representing the FDA today, asked an appeals court to stay this ruling as the appeals process plays out. As of now, it's really only stayed for a week uh, in order for that appeal to take place, Brian. So we're going to see how this plays out in the courts, but certainly getting a lot of attention, a lot of fears from the drug industry. Brian? A lot of attention on a lot of levels. Meg Terrell, thank you. All right, for reaction and discussion, let's bring in the former Associate FDA Commissioner Peter Pitts and former Blackfin CEO, Dr. Amanda Banks, who is one of the letter's authors. Thank you both for joining us on Last Call. Uh, first off, Peter, in very, very plain English for the non-FDA initiated out there, what do you believe was the rationale for the judge's ruling in this case? And what could it do to drug approvals? Well, thanks, Brian. You know, simply put, it was a bad decision. It's, it's poor law and it's disastrous for the public health. Uh, this isn't about abortion. Regardless of your position on abortion, I think we can all agree that we need a, a robust and empowered FDA. This ruling uh, disenfranchises, defenestrates, and disrespects the FDA, which is the global gold standard. And we don't want to debase the gold standard you know, for uh, personal vendettas or for people's politics or for even uh, strongly held beliefs like whether you're pro-choice or pro-life. This is about the ability of the FDA to do its job, to advance innovation, to have the faith of the American public, the American healthcare community. Uh, this uh, decision has got to be overturned. It's got to be overturned quick because if a state can ban a drug, it can also choose to approve a drug the FDA saw unfit uh, for the American public. So mm. we're in a very dangerous place. It really is an inflection point for the future. Well, doc Dr. Banks, uh, the legal basis, as I understand it again, first off, I'm just curious how they got jurisdiction on this. That's that's I, I'll go back and poke around the, the legal documents was that safety, more testing, correct, that they just wanted to have more information. What's the what's the beef of the judge with the FDA? Well, thanks for having me. I, I, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't comment on the legal basis of the claims that the plaintiffs are making. I think the key point from our perspective as a group of industry leaders that are really galvanizing support for the FDA is that without the kind of robust infrastructure and framework around the ap approvals and regulatory process for new medicines, we could be in a situation where innovation is really threatened. And in addition to my role in the biopharma industry over the years, I still take care of patients. And whilst this is also this is ostensibly about a single medicine, this is really about all medicines. And this is something that should concern all Americans. This is going to affect people that I take care of. And um, you know, I think that sort of speed of innovation is only possible that we've been able to accomplish as an industry is really only possible if we have the right, predictable and robust set of regulatory frameworks in place. Uh, and connect the dot, again, Dr. Banks, connect the dots for us as a practicing physician as well. And let's just be honest, I'm sure for a lot of people because of COVID, trust in the FDA and the CDC have gone way downhill. And some of those are unforced errors on behalf of those agencies. Let's let's be honest about that. Dr. Banks, though, is the risk here then that the industry should worry that potential life-saving drugs will not be pushed because they worry that some sort of, you know, buckaroo federal judge who's got a beef with whatever could undermine the whole process. And so why invest a billion dollars when one person in one court could undermine it all? Is that sort, did I kind of get that directionally correct? 
Yeah, I think you're I think you're you're directionally correct. I think, you know, what we do as an industry is very risky. And we invest a lot of money and time to be able to develop new medicines. And while, like I said, this is about one medicine this time, it could be about any medicine. And so in a business that's already risky, inherently risky, you know, to mm-hmm. add additional uncertainty is to really potentially create a situation where we have compromised innovation. And does it make it even more difficult here, Peter, because the drug is around the politically explosive topic of abortion? If this was any well, other you know, this, drug with the same ruling, would it be getting the attention? Well, you know, this ruling, it, it's fake pharma news. I mean, there are lots of high velocity products out there. In 2014, the Democratic governor of Massachusetts, Deval Patrick, tried to uh, cancel an FDA approval of a of Zohydra, which is a opioid. And a judge said, yes, there is an opioid epidemic. Yes, people are dying, but you don't have standing. Go away. You know, regardless of what the, the product is or what it does, uh, the FDA has to be the ultimate authority relative to drug reviews and approvals. Otherwise, the entire system falls apart mm. and patients, doctors, the economy, everything suffers quite significantly. Peter Pitts, Dr. Amanda Banks, a good discussion, an important topic. Thank you both. Appreciate it. And doctor, thank you for treating frontline patients. All right. Up next here on Last Call, the tax man cometh. The IRS gearing up for what they call a major crackdown on tax evaders. Some real world tips on what you can do to avoid an audit. I mean, who can't use that? We'll see you back in two minutes. All right, welcome back. It is time now for a quick last call watch list. We're seeing a lot of people coming into crypto lately. Bitcoin, maybe hitting a major milestone again, 30,000 bucks within reach. Bitcoin up 76% so far this year. Some are now even calling Bitcoin a safe haven with recent volatility in stocks and bonds. Imagine that. The world's second largest cryptocurrency, by the way, also enjoyed the year. It's up 58%. We're talking Ethereum. And investors bracing for what's been dubbed the Shanghai upgrade. Basically, it means that Ethereum has completely try, try to sever ties with mining, a very energy-intensive process criticized by environmentalists. That upgrade is happening on Wednesday night. By the way, it's all good news. We should remind you, Bitcoin was over $60,000 a year and a half ago. So while it has been a nice move recently, a lot of you uh, cryptopians may still be underwater. That is, either way, your watch list for tonight. All right, next up, the IRS recently released its plan for an $80 billion overhaul. They want to make sure they're getting every dollar that you may owe. But will it work? CNBC's Robert Frank has more. Robert. Well, Brian, the IRS hiring over 7,000 new enforcement agents of the next two years as part of that $80 billion funding plan. Their goal is to narrow what's called the tax gap. That's with more than a trillion dollars in uncollected taxes every year. One of their chief targets will be partnership, especially those among the very wealthy. The IRS saying the number of partnerships has soared by more than a third of the past decade to more than 4 million. Partnerships now over $5 million have increased by 75% over that period. Wealthy taxpayers increasingly using complex partnership and layers of LLCs and pass-throughs to, let's say, minimize their taxes. The IRS also saying it's going to increase the audit rate for all high earners. The audit rate for those earning a million dollars or more has fallen by 90% over the past decade to less than a tenth of 1%, along with more agents who are trained in sophisticated tax strategies. 
The IRS also plans to develop, quote, advanced data analytics to better identify and target the returns. And they plan to go after crypto, digital assets, and other what they call novel emerging issues. The IRS saying audit rates will not change for those making less than $400,000 a year. The CBO estimating all of this is going to raise about $180 billion through 2031. And Brian, that's going to be the big question is just how much they raise and what cost it will impose on small businesses, wealthy families, yeah. you name it. But, I, you know, and we hear we hear that they're not going to increase audits on anybody making less than 400000 But I wonder, Robert, and if that's a play on words, right, a little word trickery. Most entry level, there's no way an entry level IRS agent's going to be able to do an audit on somebody making that kind of money anyway. And aren't most of these, quote, audits simply letters asking for more information? I've gotten them from time to time. Usually I send something back and I never hear from them again. I wonder if they're using the word audit in a selective way. Well, they definitely are. And also selective is the term they're not going to increase audits on those making less than $400,000. What they really mean when they ask Janet Yellen is the IRS is not going to increase the historical average audit rate for those who make less than $400,000. Now, the average audit rate for those, let's say, middle income earners now is at a, a near record low. So to get back to the historical average and who knows what, how they're going to define that, will they define it relative to 2010 when it was more than four times the current rate? Or are they going to find some middle ground? I mean, depending on how they define that, quote, historical average, it's almost guaranteed that audits for those under 400000 will increase just yeah. to get back to that average. That's it. And people might argue, hey, if it's owed, it's owed, and people should pay it. Robert, thank you. All right, stay on the story. So how exactly do you avoid an audit from the IRS the first place? Now, audits do happen. To Robert's point, the rate has come way down. Last year, the IRS audited 3.8 returns out of every 1,000 audit rate of 0.38%. But some experts say certain things are more likely to trigger an exam or an audit. Joining us now with his tips is Daniel Geltrude of Geltrude & Company Accounting Firm right here in the great state of New Jersey. First off, did my point about the letter thing make sense? Like the play on words, maybe no more audits, but I think there's going to be a lot more letters which can, which can scare people. Yeah, it absolutely does. Look, the IRS is sending letters out all the time. Doesn't cost that much to send out a letter. But now you're putting people on notice. It starts to scare people into compliance. That's part of the propaganda that the IRS uses. Yeah, and, and there's no way. You got my point, too. I mean, you're not going to hire some new IRS person and then tell them to go audit a millionaire. It's not going to happen. They, no. they don't have the skills and the experience. No, they don't. So to, to say that these new IRS agents are only going to be focusing in on the wealthy, it's simply not going to be true. It's not going to be true. Anyway, OK, so we got three <laughs> red flags about possible. To, we don't want an audit. OK, first one, we'll just breeze through discrepancies and in info. I think we can all agree on that one. Make sure your basic info is correct. Number two, which I think is interesting. Large deductions or credits. COVID gave us a lot of crazy credits, right? Yep. CARES Act, you could take out from 401k, blah, blah, blah. That's a big one for an audit. Uh, it absolutely is. Look, when people are taking large deductions, let's say you had $100,000 of income and you're taking a $70,000 charitable deduction, red flag, well, doesn't make possible? sense. Well, you'd be surprised what people put on tax returns, and many times the IRS doesn't catch it. 
Happens all the time. But look, the IRS right now going after a lot of people related to that COVID money, like the PPP, Paycheck Protection Program. Billions of dollars of fraud. They're recouping that money. Tens of billions. Absolutely. Let's let's be clear on that. But that's a that's a different topic. That's a different topic. So let's say great aunt Edna dies and she leaves you a little bit of money. okay? And, you know, and so you you do you say, I'm going to make a seventy thousand dollar donation. I make one hundred thousand a year because I got all this money from great aunt Edna. Your advice is even if you want to donate the 70, don't do it all at once. Well, not necessarily. Listen, the key to this whole thing, Brian, is documentation. It's okay to be audited as long as you can prove your deductions. So if you want to make that kind of charitable contribution, make it. Just make sure you have everything properly documented. Number three, failure to report all income. But how would that even be? Now, for a W-2 employee, it's impossible, right? Unless you've got like a rental apartment or something. How how do people forget to report all their income? Well, let's not forget there's a lot of people out there in the gig economy. Sure. So, okay. they, so they do have their W-2 income. Then they got all these side hustles, not declaring all that income. Maybe they didn't see the 1099, but the IRS got it. Now there's not a match. Here we come. Do you think that audits or letters are going to go up? Yes. Yeah, they have to, right? They the have government to. Need, and by the way, if somebody owes, somebody, people should pay. What they owe. You would agree Absolutely. with that? Absolutely. Because then you're just cheating everybody else. Absolutely. Listen, we can't feel bad for tax cheats. They owe the tax. They got to yeah. pay it. But listen, this is about return on investment. The IRS sinking a lot of money yeah. into this $80 billion. They got to get a return. If they can't get it from all the rich people, guess who's next in line? Well, they're going to, and they're going to, you know, yeah, we're going to have to do it. This is not like Mo Green, you know, or Henry Hill we're talking about. These are like regular <laughs> citizens. Dan Geltrude, really appreciate your time. Thank you, I know Brian. it's a busy season for you. All right, staying on the issue of wealth, be sure to join Women and Wealth, a CNBC event. It is tomorrow. You'll hear from many thought leaders on, on wealth and all the topics around it. You can register at cnbcevents.com. All right, now let's lighten it up just a bit and head to quicker than the ticker, all the news that matters, and a story about a pretty laid-back moose. Let's put 60 seconds on the clock and go. The FBI issuing a warning against using those free cell phone charging stations at places like airports, malls, and hotels, writing in a tweet, quote, bad actors have figured out ways to introduce malware and monitoring software onto your device. India set to surpass China for the world's most populous nation. The United Nations projects India will hit 1.4 billion people later this month. Kim Kardashian set to make her scripted TV debut in the new season of FX's American Horror Story. It will premiere sometime this summer. I know you you can't wait. A moose wandered into a Providence, Alaska health complex the other day. Thankfully for security, it was a breeze to get the moose out. He just left on his own. Time to invest more in your wine? Get this. According to the San Francisco Chronicle, a man bought a bottle of French Pinot Noir from the Burgundy region for $250 in the late 1970s. It sat forgotten in its basement until now. Now he finds out it could sell for $50,000 at auction. Well, it was a Dumain Romanet Conte DRC to those in the know. All right, coming up, a story you're going to love. Hashtag sarcasm. Two members of Congress buying bank stocks right before basically bailing them out. It's sad but true in its next.
All right, time now for tomorrow's news tonight. The crime rate affecting too many U.S. cities has a new business casualty. This just happening today. Whole Foods closing its flagship store in downtown San Francisco as of the end of business hours today. The company telling local news outlets that it is due to safety concerns for its employees. Can't keep them safe. Can't keep the store open. Conditions around the store have reportedly been deteriorating, fueled by drug use and other pervasive crime. Remarkably, this Whole Foods only opened up a year ago. And I want to be clear on this Whole Foods. This Whole Foods was lauded as like the flagship store of Sanford. It's not a random store somewhere. This was a marquee store in one of America's most important technology capitals. Now, the store workers will keep their jobs and be transferred I assume if they wish, to other locations. Either way, significant loss for the city, significant loss really for on a lot of different levels. The Whole Foods in San Francisco after one year shutting down because they can't keep the workers safe. All right, meantime, another story that could increase the pressure on Congress to restrict stock trading by lawmakers. According to the Wall Street Journal, two members of Congress reported trades in bank stocks last month. Of course, that is when the government was addressing the fallout from two of the largest bank failures in American history. Lawmakers in question, Democratic Congressman from Oregon, Earl Blumenauer, and Republican Congresswoman from New York, Nicole Maliotakis, who was actually on our show last week, but we didn't know about this until this weekend. For more on it, let's bring in the author of that report, Rebecca Ballhouse. She is a reporter for The Wall Street Journal. I, I mean, it's got a bad look written all over it. Yeah, well, thank you for having me on. I think this is a a really good example of kind of what happens when you have so few rules. And it's really striking to me because uh, given all the pressure that Congress has faced over the last year over their stock trading, over trading in companies that were affected by things Congress was doing, the fact that lawmakers would trade in bank stocks at this moment where there's so much scrutiny on the federal government's response to these bank failures sort of shows, I think, what happens when you don't have those rules. And is it just the usual, well, we've got someone else running the accounts. What are, how are they justifying this? So there are a couple different ways they're justifying it. So we have Nicole Maliotakis, who, as you mentioned, um, bought stock in a bank. She met with financial regulators about the closure of Signature Bank. A couple days after that, she buys stock in New York Community Bank Corp. And a couple days after that, that stock goes up 32% because one of its banks agreed to take on the deposits of Signature Bank. So in that instance, her people say that New York Community Bank Corp didn't come up in the meetings that she was a part of with financial regulators, that she had no advanced knowledge, and that she bought this stock on the recommendation of her financial advisor. Um, In some of the other instances that we looked at, there is a financial advisor who, um, in the example of Democrat Earl Blumenauer, uh, his spokespeople say that he has no input for his financial advisor, that they make trades in his wife's account without his knowledge. Um, But nonetheless, the fact that someone can be meeting with financial regulators or co-sponsoring legislation that would affect banks while trading in banks is pretty striking. Also, isn't it striking how how sage some of these mid-level financial advisors are? I mean, they just like a couple days later, they're like, oh, my gosh, my my client happened to pass some law. It's just incredible. Wow. Rebecca, good story. Everybody should read it. Thank you. All right. Coming up, these shocking confessions of some big tech workers. 
kind of seemed that Meta was hiring people so that other companies couldn't have us. And then they were just kind of like hoarding us like Pokemon cards. And wait till you hear how much she was paid for that honor. All right, welcome back to Last Call. Imagine you have just been hired by a big name tech company. You move to their headquarters, maybe move states or cities, and you accept a nice six figure plus paycheck. Then you start your job and sit around not doing much of anything and you get laid off. That sound bizarre? It's not. It's increasingly common in big tech. It's exactly what happened to your next guest. Britt Levy was hired as a recruiter at Facebook's Meta in April of last year. She accepted the job, moved to San Francisco to a job where she admits she didn't do much. Her role was eventually one of the over 10,000 job cuts that Meta cut back in November. She joins us now. Uh, Britta, you know, I appreciate you telling your story. Um, and, you know, you made some good money for a short period of time. So no one's, I think, is going to feel terrible about that. But do you feel you kind of got hoodwinked? Yeah, I definitely feel like I got hoodwinked. And $100,000 sounds like a lot of money. Not but in San Francisco. When you're laid off... And not in San Francisco. And when you're laid off six months into that and you made 75000 a year before, it's starting to look like a pay cut now. What did they tell you? When you, you get there, you're all excited. You know, it takes a couple days or weeks to ramp up. We get that. You know, but at some point you're like, all right, I'm ready to go. And then what happened? Yeah, so I was actually a part of a program, and it doesn't mean much if you only have six months of experience, which is the exact reason that myself and other colleagues were so upset. If you're hired into a program and they say that it's going to be one year, they tell you that they have even budgeted for this program for the year, and that you're being told every single week, up until the week before layoffs, that your position is not going to be eliminated it starts to look like something is up. You definitely feel that there is something going on here. Yeah, I'm sure you've kept in touch with some of the your, your, your former colleagues, right? I'm guessing you have. You haven't just said, no, Sullivan, you're wrong. I haven't. But I'm sure you have. What are they saying? I mean, what's the vibe in the tech community in San Francisco and Silicon Valley right now? It can't be good. So I don't know as far as other companies, but I know that Meta's reputation is really going to suffer from this. Not only did they tell a bunch of people back in November that if they were not laid off, that they would be safe. Now we're saying that that's not true. There's a lot of people that are coming to find out that, hey, maybe my position isn't safe. And that's just causing a lot of instability with the company. I think that the way that they did these layoffs, it definitely could have been done. Um, it, it could have been better. There was a lot of miscommunication, a lot of confusion. And then after Google announced their severance package, there's been yeah. a lot of people that reached out to me that say that they're not happy with what Meta's offered. Quickly, you have a line on another gig, another job, a good one, I hope. So I, right now, um, I am doing a little bit of freelance work. I'm doing some contract work. Um, I'm just trying yep. to stay open to whatever opportunities come my way because it just seems that recruiting is, it's not the industry to be in right yeah. now. No, it's and it was, and now it's not. And we appreciate your story. Britt, thank you. Good luck. Thank you. All right. Folks, do you know what happened 53 years ago tonight? Paul McCartney announced the Beatles were breaking up. Let's take you back in time. To April 10th, 1970, the Fab Four began to grow apart after nearly a decade of chart-topping success. Only a tangled set of business relationships kept the group together. But all that ended after McCartney said he 
no longer had a songwriting partnership with John Lennon. By the end of the year, McCartney made it official. The Beatles, no more. He actually filed a lawsuit to dissolve the Beatles' business deal. And this is random but interesting. Not even one of the lads from Liverpool had turned 30 years old at the time. And in seven years, they released 12 albums. Their 200-plus catalog of songs estimated to be worth north of $1 billion. Wow. All right, folks. Well, we certainly hope we please pleased you. But for now, we're just going to have to let it be and see you tomorrow because we can't see you yesterday. I'll stop, but only for tonight. We'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for watching Last Call on CNBC. Shark Tank is next. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.